will be take. No, I've already cocked up. <laughs> yes. yes. We'll be taking a look at the. We'll be taking a look at a deep dive. No, we won't. <laughs> oh, you know, it's all going so well. Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for isolated film geeks by your resident isolated film geeks. And talking of film geeks, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Macon. And welcome to another show. This week, we will be looking at film news from around the interweb. Our deep dive this week is Enter the Dragon, the Bruce Lee classic. And Andy will be telling me his thoughts on Goodwill Hunting. All coming up this week. How have we been, Andy? I've been active in watching films. Over the past week, I've watched an average of two per day. Wow, I've really dropped down this week. I really have. My my viewing has been a bit poor. I don't know why. I think I've got kind of Netflix blind, which apparently is a thing now. <laughs> Netflix blind? Yeah, you kind of look at the menu and you go, yeah, I really want to watch that. Uh, but I don't know if it's tonight's the night. Maybe I'll watch it tomorrow. Out of the films that I've watched, only one of them is something that I've seen before as well. Oh, that's good. Which, which that's Enter the Dragon, which we're going to be talking about later. But, you know, I've, I've plowed through my list of classics and Oscar-nominated films that I've not got round to because the list that I've got posted on the letterbox is only a fraction. So this week, and yeah, I've, I've watched things like Anna Karenina, Vice, Room. I've watched that new Adams Family animation, Brexit, The Uncivil War, that Channel 4 drama around all the Brexit advertising campaign. All of those have got into my wish list, by the way. Anvil, the story of Anvil. That is great. Um, Friday and West Side Story. Fantastic. Some, some, you know, pretty much a varied choice. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I'm managing to keep it going. If I was just watching the same kind of things constantly, I'd probably get a bit numb to it. So I'm trying to like mix it up by throwing in like ones from the Oscar classics, ones from just general people have spoken about this film so many times I need to watch it. And just ones that just catch my eye. So I'm getting a good momentum going of it. Fantastic. And everything's well in your world because we're still isolating. We're doing this show separately. Normally we'll sit in a room and do it together. And I think we've found us, we found us pattern now. We've found our, our mode of operandi to be able to do yeah. this. It's, uh, it's, it's become more natural to be talking yeah. um, over the internet. And it's going to be bizarre when we actually get around to sitting around the table again mm -hmm. and recording. And that's why we're going to be awkward about it again because we have to re-educate ourselves on how it used to work. Well, for this week, funny enough, I've seen other human beings, which I've not done for a long time because of the new, um, more relaxed uh, uh, socializing status that we seem to be in right now, barring uh, coronavirus uh, part two. It's it's been great just to just to chat. I, I you know I, went, I managed to see my my parents. I started recording. I'm working. Been working on an album on and off for the last six months. I managed to do something with that. It's just been great to to socialize with people. If there's a way we could do this outside and have great sound, then that's that's a thing. That's the thing. I mean, up, up until a few days ago, I mean, we in our back garden, the wife put up a little tent enclosure kind of thing which would have been great, except that she decided to take it down and snapped part of it. So ah. we haven't got that anymore. Because I was thinking this morning, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be good if it was nice weather? You come round and we sit opposite ends of a table out in the garden with something to stop any wind blowing and all that and just record it. Yeah, and yeah. Yes, it will be perfect sound, but it'll be, it'll capture it quite nice. And then it's like, oh, but well, she's broken that. So uh, that's out of the question now. Yeah, quick trip to Argos for next week then. So Andy... It's this point of the program where you have been scouring the internet to bring us, if not the latest news, then news that matters for you, our dear listeners. Uh, so, Andy, tell us what you've got. Something we've not spoken about for the past few weeks, because there's been a lot of momentum of actual fit films getting put into production, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is how the coronavirus is impacting on the industry. Yeah, well, we kind of reached a... We kind of reached a bit of a dead end, didn't we? Because nothing was was really seriously moving forward. Um, indecision about the opening of cinemas right now. No thorough plan. Uh, and just looking at elements of, I mean, the only thing that seems to be dominating that is is the release date for Tenet, which I know we're going to talk yeah. about. Well, the Tenet is still set for that July the 17th release date, even though that release date was taken off all their most recent marketing. There's still no change of it. Uh, but there are whispers and rumblings within the industry that it could still shift date. And um, there's a bit of like 
dubious aspects under there. A lot of this is coming because we've previously reported that at least 80% of the world's cinemas would have to open for Tenet to be able to make money given the reduced capacity, etc. And whilst the National Association of Theatrical Owners in the US believes that 90% of US cinemas will be open by July, it's looking like up to 40% of Chinese cinemas might not reopen at the end of their lockdown because they are still not open and they've been locked down since January. So that's like 5,000 venues for 27,000 screens in China that won't be open. And that's a huge part of box office, isn't it? It's a huge one. And like we've already reported, Nolan and Warners have said, if Tenet can't get released in one country, it's not getting released anywhere. They're doing it worldwide or nothing. China still doesn't know if it's going to reopen its cinemas. If almost half of the Chinese cinemas don't open anyway, that's going to put a big sting in how much box office take there can be. But there's also like upset going on in America because AMC... Are, have you know we've reported previously of their financial struggles and they're the ones who own Odeon in the UK and they're reportedly close to filing for van- bankruptcy. That would be devastating. They've been telling their regulators that their future is extremely uncertain even if they do re- reopen within the next month and that is a worry because they are the biggest chain in the US. The impact that would have on the cinema industry not just to the US, but internationally would internationally, be... Internationally, it's huge. ...would be momentous. Um, as you say, they own a cinema chain in the UK. The, uh, the fallout, I would imagine, for any sort of fil- film distribution as they are the, the major, major chain in the US is, is going to be uh, it's going to be astronomical. And all of this pressure for opening for Tenet on July the 17th, so cinemas are basically being told you need to be open for this, otherwise you won't get it and you're going to lose out if other cinemas do open. It's making some cinema chains feel that they're being pressured by a distributor into reopening when they'll only be able to reopen with limited capacity around 25%. Limited products on sale because, you know, handling of food products, a lot of people are going to be a bit unsure about that. Having to add in extra costs of extra staff in order to police the building in a way to make it safe for the customers or at least give the perception to the customers that extra things are getting done in order to do it. So cinemas are potentially going to be operating at a loss after they've just lost out significantly for the past few months just because one distributor is insisting still that their film is coming out at this time. When, I mean, we know ourselves in the UK that whilst Boris Johnson is saying, oh, yes, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and we're, we're on the way through, the the reports of the deaths each day are on the rise again. And so we're not out the out the woods yet. So should we really be getting pressured into reopening cinemas at this point in time? I mean, I work in a cinema and I can't wait to get back to work. I really need to get back into that normal routine of life. But I don't want to be forced into doing it at a time that maybe the country is not ready for. And, and same as a, as a patron of, uh, uh, of a cinema. I don't want to be going into a cinema thinking this has all been done half-assed which it's it would be without consultation, uh, which I'm sure every cinema organisation is now doing. I will confirm that there are a lot of ideas and a lot of talks and a lot of things getting like put into place to make them safe environments for when they do open. I can't say what they are because it's all it's all being discussed and nothing's finalised, but it all it is all being taken very seriously from the cinema's point of view. But it still feels like they're doing it simply because of one film. Relating to all the stuff that's going on with cinemas potentially not opening, some going out of business, there's also rumours that Amazon and Apple are circling around the various cinema chains looking for an investment opportunity, which I compare to vultures circling around a dying dying body ready to pick at the, the corpse. Amazon and Apple and all the other streaming services seem to be making money at this point in time during the lockdown, and they're ready to pounce on the cinema chains that are struggling. Now, Sam Mendes has done a statement to say that all these digital distributors who have been profiting during this bad time, wouldn't it be much better for them to reinvest some of their profits back into the industry that is struggling, be it investing in the actual production of films, the arts, etc., or the distribution of films, rather than waiting to just pounce? It's a negative time within the industry. 
because of the effects of the coronavirus. And we don't know where it's going. We still don't know whether or not the 90-day window is going to get hit. Analysts are currently suggesting that that's going to be something that's going to get pushed backwards and forwards over the next year. And we probably will end up with a 30-day to 45-day window of cinemas getting something before it goes on to streaming in future. But there's going to be a lot of things going on over the next year within the industry that is going to cause a lot of upset and a lot of disappointments. We're not out of the woods yet with the coronavirus, and we're not out of the woods yet with the rumblings in the industry. Let alone the distribution patterns. We're still looking at how we're going to work out actual production. I've just been asked today to, to get involved in a production. And what would normally would be, yes, I will come and visit and talk to you and sit down and develop a script. Uh, is now working out to be the hardest part, which is usually the simplest part of any production, which is sat yeah. and talking to uh, a client and working that through in a way that is acceptable for all parties. It's it, it was so easy to fall into into usual patterns as soon as you start talking about production to then realize that it's just a minefield of not only keeping myself uh, safe, the clients I'll be working with safe, the crew I'll be working with safe. It suddenly dawned on me this new horizon that we're heading into and, and how we're going to deal with that. But we will. I mean, the thing is that, that we will have to persevere if we want an industry at this stage. Yeah. Well, um, on, on that news, I mean, the, the Venom crew have been concerned about their return to work and production. As been said by producer Dan Wilson, uh, nobody wants to go into an environment that's going to be risky, and that goes for crew members too. It's not just talent. It's everybody involved on set. There's a nervousness, and that's natural and un understandable. In the plans we've discussed, they've certainly taken that into account, and we'll see when we get there, I guess. So it, it's as they go into the actual production of the films, how do you get so many people, cast and crew, on set and still keep this safe environment for them? And we've discussed it a couple of episodes ago when you said about you, someone who you know who works in TV production has been saying that people who are going to be working on a scene are isolated together for a couple of weeks beforehand. And if you've noticed, uh, James Cameron's talked about exactly that with returning to New Zealand to shoot the Avatar sequels. Uh, Mission, Mission Impossible 7 and 8 are hoping to get into production again in September. Jolly good. Again, with strict, strict guidelines being put into place. Uh, with a Mission Impossible film, with all the stunt work that has to go into those films, that's going to be one of the productions that is going to have to be really careful about how it sets things up, how it gets cast and crew together, who's where, who's doing what, and everything's got to run smoothly. Looking at big movies in particular, they are so so aware of risk on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, every now and then, right, accidents will happen on a set, and but you think about the, um, the amount of big productions that goes off, which are fairly risk-free. This is an industry that, that, that thrives on, on risk aversion. It will be the one industry where more time will be spent on pre-production and planning, not just planning of, of where to shoot your scene, et cetera, the call sheet, but how, the, uh, how working in, in the present-day environment will be used to its, to its maximum. I think the film industry is, is in, a, in a particularly strong position to be able to take a lead on how to how to set this new stage out. I think they are very good at working to maximizing time, minimizing any sort of loss and waste and, and working to a budget and a delivery date. And I think the film industry will also be one of those industries which will, will set a precedent to back into TV, back into, into other, other ways of how we do this. I'm, I'm interested to see where they go, but I've got a lot of faith in how the film industry will do it because it's yeah. a multi, multi-million uh, pound or dollar business where they can't afford a risk. I think it'll be very interesting to see how they move forward, but I do think they will be leading with, with the best interest of everybody, and that is everybody from cast directors to, as you said, stunts, catering, makeup yeah. artists, uh, whether it's, you know, masks are going to be enforced on it, uh, PPE, they will find a way to deliver. I'm pretty sure of it. Cans may have been cancelled or cancelled. Canned? Has it been canned? Has cans been canned? It's been you? canned. Um, but they have released online a list of the 56 films that would have made up the selection for the festival as a way to still support and honour the features that would have been competing. Because as as we know, like, yeah, Cannes is a big 
major part of the film calendar. And what comes from it is all those little logos getting slapped on film posters to help promote the film, to say part of the selection at Cannes, part of the selection, prize winner at Cannes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it does add a prestige to a film if it's been mentioned as being part of the festival. So if you do a search online, you can find it on the Cannes website and you can find it on various news sites for the full list. But the list of 56 contains films such as Wes Anderson's French Dispatch, which is my film of the year, even though I've not seen it, because Wes Anderson films always become my film of the year. It looks great, doesn't it? Have you seen the trailer for it? Oh, yeah. I, it, it's perfect, Wes Anderson. I I adore everything that he manages to Me do. Too. And I love Me the too. fact that he manages to use such a huge amount of big names and stars just for small roles. He gets... He gets whoever he wants, basically, and everyone seems to want to work with him. I adore the guy. I think we've just talked ourselves into our next deep dive. <laughs> Wes Anderson, something from Wes Anderson. Uh, San Ho Yun's Peninsula, the spin-off from Train to Busan. Pixar's Soul is amongst the list. And also two films by Steve McQueen. Um, now, McQueen, he did his remake of Widows, the BBC series last year. He remade it for film. And he's been working with the BBC on a series called Small Axe, which was going to be an anthology series set in London's West Indian community in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Now, instead, that idea spun out to form the basis of five feature films. The first two of them are part of the Cannes selection, and they are Mangrove, which tells the story of the Mangrove Nine, with Letitia Wright and Sean Parks starring, and a film called Lovers, Lovers Rock, which focuses on young love at a blues party in the 80s. For the other three films, we don't know what the details are. We don't know what they're about. But John Bay- names like John Boyega, Jack Loden, uh, set to star. And McQueen has dedicated the first two films to the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd. Excellent. Two, two films getting put by one director in, uh, for Cannes simply because what he fleshed out as an anthology TV series just grew and grew and grew. And he's another director that I've got a lot of love for. I love his approach to filmmaking. I love, he's got a very cold approach at times. He, he just shows things and doesn't really try to manipulate you. He lets what's presented on screen tell the story for you. As a good director should. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Totally. What else have you got? Well, let's talk about Ridley Scott's Alien films. Yes, well, let's really. You know, it's funny you should mention Ridley Scott because I have been going through this last week a great need because we talked about it. We mentioned it uh, when we talked about director's cuts. Uh, just sit down and watch Alien again. Watch it fresh with some new eyes. I've not seen it for, ooh, you know, probably 10 or so years now. I'm ready to watch it again. However, I have a doubt I will ever go back to Alien Covenant. I quite liked Prometheus. That even though it, it falls apart for many, many reasons and is ultimately a disappointment. Uh, Alien Covenant is, is a huge disappointment and would have been better being a Prometheus sequel as opposed to being an, an Alien uh, retread, yeah. uh, which which really is partly my first dislike for it. Apart, and the secondly, it made absolutely squat sense <laughs> and is a colour by numbers Alien film. But you know more than I do, clearly. Getting back to Prometheus... I loved that film when I first saw it and then I got the Blu-ray of it and I watched it and I still enjoyed it and then I watched all the extras and I grew to love the film even more because you can start to see the ideas that were in there. Is that one film then that would benefit from a special edition then? I, I think, yeah, there's there's quite a lot that could have been presented in a different way. Uh, I'm not campaigning for it because the... Ex- I mean, the, the features on the DVD and Blu-ray are huge. There's a load of material in there, branching off extras and things like that. So everything is in there that you need in order to appreciate the film. But there were so many ideas that were kind of hindered by, well, it was Fox. And when you get to Covenant, you can see that the studio involvement was possibly what crippled it. It looks like we're never going to get his third film because he always wanted to make a third film within that trilogy. And it looks like that's not going to happen, especially now that it's been sold to Disney. So there's a whole new approach, etc. However, Ridley Scott wants to retool the ideas and do something new and different and take it in a different direction. To quote the the great director himself, because he is a great director. Let's let's not oh, forget how great he is. Uh, what I always thought when I was making it, the first one, is why would a creature like this be made, and why was it traveling 
in what I always thought was a kind of warcraft, which was carrying a cargo of those eggs. What was the purpose of the vehicle and what was the purpose of the eggs? That's the thing to question. Who, why, and for what purpose in the next idea, I think. Because it, it, we, we've seen aspects of that in Prometheus. It's something to do with the alien race demonstrated in there. But we don't exactly know why they were doing it. So that's where he wants to take the story and that's where he wants to spin it off and that's where he wants to explore going forwards. I would always give him the time of day. Always give him the time of day to come back to an alien film. Because, as you said, it's Ridley Scott. I'd like to think that now that the property is under new studio hands, that he would have more direct creative freedom because Fox were notorious for stepping on directors' free, like creative controls. Yes, they were. They did it on too many films, and no, no one can defend any of their actions on the X-Men franchise where they basically stood on every director that they um, managed to hire. Everything that they touched, they always got a bit of cold feet with and push the director to make changes to their ideas. It's interesting then that then we talked about this last week, is that Planet of the Apes turned out yeah. as good as it did. That was quite a low low budget. And that's the only times that they didn't step on directors and creators' toes. They did the same with Deadpool. Deadpool was kept around about an eighty million budget because anything above a hundred million, and that's when Fox starts to get involved. And with the Planet of the Apes films, they kept it at a moderate budget. Yeah, there's uh, there's too many horror stories I've read in in other publications about working at Fox at that particular point and what was imposed on what could have been great looking films. I mean, the Fantastic Four films are a perfect yeah. example of that. What they did with Daredevil for the for the Marvel films, what they did yeah. with you know the further continuation of the Alien story, a path of a path of destruction and and um, disappointment really. I was always very interested to see uh, Neil Blomenkamp's version of Alien 5 and see where that would have gone and, and how that would have explored. It's a shame that never got to fruition. I, yeah. I like the Alien stories. I wonder if there's anything new that can be done for it. Well, the, the comic books and the novels and the video games have shown that there's a huge array of different stories you can tell within that framework. It's just that the studio just wanted to churn out yet another alien sequel at every point and that's where it's gone wrong the same has happened with predator is every predator film ends up suffering because it just tries to be predator yeah do something different there's other creative material out there which has shown what you can do with these properties and hopefully like i said now it's under new hands hopefully the creators will have more involvement in the actual creative decisions just while we're on the subject of uh, Ridley Scott, so an interesting little documentary on YouTube, which is uh, readily available to see about his aborted I Am Legend movie. Uh, fascinating look at what he would have done and how end, it ended up with Warner's pulling the plug on that, on his vision on that one. But it's a fascinating little documentary with some of the screen tests for some of the uh, makeup effects. Very different to the film that we ultimately got. I still think that HBO should do an I Am Legend series. That would make yeah. it for me. Anyway, a, what else have you got? A for faithful adaptation. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Dune, which is due out uh, at the end of this year. And still no trailer. Still no trailer. Uh, all that we know about it is that it's part one of two. But Greg Fraser, the cinematographer, has confirmed that even though it is part one of a two-part story, it will serve as a standalone film in case the film fails to find an audience. Oh, so you won't good. be left left hanging and feeling, oh, well, we're never going to see what's going to happen. Jumper, we're looking at you. In, in his own words, it's a fully formed story in itself with places to go. It's a fully standalone epic film that people will get a lot out of when they say it was quite an adventure visually. It was a beautiful experience making it. The people involved with it, I was overwhelmed. Some of the actors, as well as being the insanely talented actors, are just lovely, lovely people. So it sounds like he's had a really good time on set and it's been a really good production. And... Uh, yeah, I've, I've we've stated many times that I've got a huge love for Dune, and I'm really excited about this film because it looks like it, you know the little snippets of shots from set and the proper publicity shots now have just whetted my appetite enough. We still need that trailer, though. Yeah, looking forward to seeing anything. I mean, just getting a hint of what kind of feel it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Should be soon. Should be soon. Uh, Marvel news. So. We've got Evan Peters is apparently going to appear in WandaVision in a key role. Let the fan speculation run wild. 
So for those who don't know who Evan Peters is, he's the guy who played Quicksilver in Fox's X-Men franchise. And Quicksilver is the brother of the Scarlet Witch. Wanda, as in WandaVision. So obviously there's a speculation that, because WandaVision is going to see Wanda and Vision living in a 50s suburbia sitcom that's not all what it seems. So it's already like an alternate reality approach, or maybe there's something weird and supernatural going on, or maybe, just maybe, her hex abilities have managed to alter reality around her. Who knows? Is Evan Peters going to come in as an alternate version of Quicksilver? And is that a way to manage to shoehorn him into the MCU? Because he was one of the things that came out of that era of the X-Men films that everyone loved, even though he was utilised for a key scene in each film and then just put to the sidelines. Everyone really took to the character. It really worked, didn't it? That his interpretation of Quicksilver, there was a hint that Magneto was his father in it. And he brought an energy that would, was much, 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 much needed in the uh, in the X Men franchise. Now, one one speculation that I've got is like, okay, so it's a fifties suburbia sitcom. How old would young Magneto be in the fifties? <laughs> that is fanboy speculation running wild, indeed. And wouldn't it be awesome if Evan Peters was playing a, a variation on a young Magneto, just to give that little nod of like child of. We've got to wait and see because there's nothing confirmed at the moment. All that we know is that he's it's a key role. And from what I know, we're looking at a December air date on Disney Plus, aren't we, for WandaVision? We, we are indeed. Um, hopefully that will be a worldwide December one, not like what we had with Mandalorian that we had to wait. But there's no reason why it shouldn't be a worldwide one. And on other Marvel news, uh, Daredevil is finally getting back into the hands of Marvel themselves. Yeah, now th- it's a complicated story. This because what they had to do is they uh, they never when they got the rights back they didn't lose lose the rights. When they went into the deal with Netflix, there was a, a shall we say a cooling down period after uh, after the series wrapped at, at Netflix or, or or indeed was cancelled, and Marvel couldn't do anything with the character for a certain amount of time. So. They still they had control of the character. They just couldn't do anything with him. Now, if Marvel have it back and want to take him into the MCU, which we hope that they do, Daredevil, let's let's go from the get go. Say is my favorite Marvel character. Whenever I've dropped in and out of comics, and I have many times, and you know, dropped it down to maybe one or two titles from maybe thirty a month. Daredevil has always been a consistency. I'm loving the current run that Chip Zdarsky is writing. I think it's fantastic. It's one of those characters that really never loses its edge, uh, whatever the interpretation is. I would love to see another Daredevil series. However, I would love to see it with the cast that they have because the portrayal of Matt Murdock and Daredevil was pretty much spot on for me. I thought it. I thought it was almost a near, near enough the best interpretation you could possibly get, other than a big screen version. And there's a there's a lot of hints which are nodding towards that being a possibility that they keep that cast from that Netflix series. Normally, by this point, they'll have turned around and says, "Well, actually, everyone's out of contract, and no one's coming back to it. Goodbye." Instead, we've got a cast who turn around and go, "Well, we're still waiting." They're all wanting to come back. There's no one said that it's not going to be, they're not going to happen. And it's going to reboot. There's no reason to do it. That was kind of set within the MCU anyway. It yeah. just had to not be directly set within the MCU. So there's no reason to recast them. And the fan base have all been supportive of them coming back into the roles. Yeah, let, let's get all of those defenders into the MCU where they can play with the big boys. Uh, interesting story going around that John Truman, who wrote a fantastic uh, movie version of Iron Fist, which of course never got made, always hear him saying that he, how disappointed he was with the, 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 the Netflix version. I've got some liking points. Netflix, uh, Netflix of Iron Fist was the weakest out of ev- everything, even though he, he worked very well once he got to the defenders. Uh, I never saw the second season, so I don't know if it improved. The first season was all over the place, but he's, he's, comments and his script for for the first iron fist movie uh, was absolutely fantastic captured the character perfectly i i had more love for the iron fist series than i had for the luke cage series oh the opposite for me i felt that the 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 luke cage series particularly season one 
the first half of it was really good. And then they killed off an interesting villain and then just like meandered around with a, a second rate villain, as far as I was concerned, for the last half of it. And it didn't feel like it built to anything. I'll agree with you on that, totally. Whereas Iron Fist, you, you know, I know a lot of people, they watched like two or three episodes of Iron Fist and couldn't take to the character and hated him and stopped watching. But the whole series arc was him lit, like growing, not only in his abilities, but also in his his own self and realizing that, you know, he, he was a spoiled little rich kid, but he needs to be something more than that. And he grew as a character and it built up towards a climax. The whole series grew and built. So I, I've got a lot more appreciation for it because loads of people complained about it because they wanted another Daredevil. They wanted it to just be kick off, like kick ass from the beginning and like, you know, the origin story of a Daredevil-esque character. But it wasn't. It was a different personality. It was a, like I say, a spoiled rich kid who could do like special martial arts tricks. He needed to learn to be humble, and over the series, he became a bit more humble about his abilities, and in that instance, managed to tap into the full nature of his abilities. I could talk about the Iron Fist series like until the, cow, the cows <laughs> come home. <laughs> so, um, but. Suffice to say, I'd be interested to see all of that cast, regardless of how well they were appreciated or not appreciated on the Netflix shows, given a chance to actually grow within the full MCU framework. So let's just hope. Let's just hope we get the dead of all that we always wanted to see, you know, with the uh, budgets that the MCU will accord and uh, we get to see the cast return because they were, they were my mind's eye version. As soon as you've achieved that, then you 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 know that's that's half the battle won. I hear you've got some uh, uh, full moon news at best. Uh, yeah, um, I've been mooning out the window quite a lot. <laughs> uh, no, so there's a new version of Wolfman, a new take on the 1941 Lon Chaney Jr. film, um, which is in pre-production at the moment. Casting has been announced, and it's none other than Ryan Gosling who's being no. cast. Who? you would think is a strange choice for a dark universe kind of nonsense film, which leads me to suspect that this is more akin to the more recent Invisible Man than anything to do with that shared dark universe nonsense that they tried a couple of years ago with The Mummy. Which went straight out of the window very, very quickly with uh, with the flop of one film and never to be discussed again by the general public and locked in a vault somewhere. And, and as we've seen, yeah. actually, you know, in, in all fairness, we got a better invisible man movie than we we dared we could have well this is doing another similar one where it's going to be a contemporary take on the tale seeing ryan gosling as an anchorman who gets infected and becomes the wolfman and it's been described as a dark satire of media okay i'd like it to be described as uh, a horror film because it always worries me when horror films have been described as something else it's almost like sometimes some studios are afraid to put their hand on their chest and go it's a horror film, guys. At the end of the day, that's what the, you want. You know, if they just directly call it a horror, then um, you know the Academy Awards will never look at it. However, if they say this is a dark um, satire of media, the Academy Awards might go, ooh, interesting, and it gets a nod. It'll be a horror. Um, Lauren, Lauren Bloom and Rebecca Angelo have penned the latest script. There's no director attached as of yet, but it will be another one like Invisible Man that is kept at a quite low budget to make the most of the money that they've got and hopefully deliver a product that doesn't get stepped on by a studio. Let's hope so. I, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of good running out of Wolfman. You know, even if we just follow the, the uh, Larry Talbot story from the original 1930s Universal Horror movies yeah. uh, and explore that character because it's, there, you know, there was, a, there was the one thing about the Universal the original Universal monster movies is there was a, such a huge amount of pathos connected to all of the characters as well. So I'd love to see that that played with. And, and the Wolfman movies were great. Lon Chaney Jr. in that role was absolutely fantastic. And uh, final news for the roundup this week, uh, John Wick films. Can't complain. You know I'm a big John Wick fan, as huge I'm a big fan. Keanu Reeves fan. Uh, so John Wick 4 and the Continental spin-off TV series projects are still in the pipeline. But in addition, there's another spin-off in development. Chad Stahelski has confirmed that Len Wiseman is going to be directing a proposed spin-off called Ballerina, which focuses on a female assassin seeking revenge. Now, they hinted at the ballerina aspect in John Wick 3, didn't they, when he, yes. uh, he attended the ballet school. 
as all part of, and, and I love how they built the mythos up in, in John Wick. I think, you know, it's gone from being a, a just a revenge movie into something much deeper and much bigger. And it's been a gradual world building as well. It's not, they didn't put it all in the first film and just to overburden the first film. The first film was just very punchy, very snappy and a simple revenge thriller. And it's in the second film that they started to layer in a few more aspects. And then the third film layered in even more. So they've gradually built up this whole mythos, this whole underworld culture of assassins that work in in direct view of everyone who don't realise it's going on. Yeah, it's been it's it's been a fantastic run, and, and as I said, who would have seen it from that first movie? And, and just while we're on the subject of Keanu Reeves, we know that he's coming back for John Wick Four, uh, which I think is in in the pre production straight stages right now. And we also know that we can't wait for him to come back uh, in in Bill and Ted Face the Music. We don't know whether it's going to get a theatrical or an online release at this stage. But did you see the little clip? of Keanu Reeves and Alex Winters addressing the uh, graduation at San Dimas High School. San Dimas High School, the rules. <laughs> oh, yes. What a great little thing for them to do. It was so easy. It was so short and sweet and to the point and ended up with a with a party on at the end. It was fabulous. It, it, and, yeah, seeing how much that meant to the students to have an address given to them by Bill and Ted. Their most famous students. Yeah, it was such a marvelous little little side project for them to do. To yeah, yes, it, it's a it's also a publicity stunt on the run up to another Bill and Ted's film coming out. But what a that that's what that's what publicity stunts should be. They yeah. should be ones that give joy to the people who they're stunting for, not just yeah. to sell a film, but also to just show people. We we love you. We love your town. The, you know, your town is known for our fictional characters. Let's embrace that. You are all great people. You can be anything. Marvellous. Loved it. What a great way to round off the news. We, uh, we move on now. Because every week for the last couple of weeks, Andy has been sat in uh, his... Darkness. Uh, <laughs> his inner sanctum, catching up with all the Oscar-winning films that he's never seen. Uh, and every week I've proposed a new film for him to watch uh last week we went through uh michael mann's last of the mohicans and this week i set him a film which i'm surprised that you've not seen and i'm surprised that we've not seen it together at some point andy and that's mm-hmm. uh, goodwill hunting now goodwill hunting was, was came out in 1997 it was one of those films that that literally changed people's careers both ben affleck and, and matt damon were working their way up through the star ladder uh, and getting bigger and better roles. But this is a film that they not only appeared in, this is a film that they wrote. But not only they wrote it, but they won Best Original Screenplay in the Oscars for it. And it, it caused a lot of controversy. These two upstart kids who were uh, then in their late 20s uh, were, were making it as actors, but they'd now won an original screenplay. Many people thought it would they'd, they'd dupe the world and that William Goldman had come in and, and written it, if I remember. But it was a film that was a small film, uh, directed by Gus Van Sant, uh, starred Robin Williams alongside Matt Damon, Stellan Skarsgård, and Minnie Driver. Uh, it's a warm little film. Kevin Smith was involved, and at one point, Kevin Smith had been asked to direct it, but didn't think he, he had the chops to do it. It's focused around, well, Andy, you tell me. You tell me the story, and tell me what you thought about it. So... Matt Damon plays a 20-year-old janitor who's had a very troubled life, which meant that his instinctive genius and speed reading ability have never been recognised and drawn upon. When a professor, uh, Professor Lambeau, played by Stellan Skarsgård, vouches for him and takes him under his wing, one condition of that is that he must attend psychiatric counselling. And this ends up being the task of Dr. Sean Maguire, played by the late and great Robin Williams, um, who was an old colleague of Professor Lambeau, who has a very unique approach to dealing with Will Hunting. My feelings on this film, it is now easily within my top five films of all time. Fantastic. That's uh, that's a high uh, a high esteem to be given for any film. I, I like this film a lot. and it, it influenced a project I was working on tremendously at the time. It was my first sold screenplay. Fortunately, never got made. And, and, and the fact that Goodwill Hunting came out gave me the ability to um, to really, really move that script forward. And that's the reason that my script got bought. So I've got a lot of love for Goodwill Hunting. And 
clerks and swingers all, all helped me sell my first screenplay. And so I've, I, uh, I'm in tremendous debt to this film and like it a lot. It went through a lot of changes before it reached the screen. You know, the, it started out with Matt Damon writing this film as part of its final assignment for a playwriting class while he was at, at university. So it developed into a 40-page script. It was even involved his, his then-girlfriend, Skylar, who becomes one of the characters. And, and then he shopped it around, and, and Ben Affleck came in, and they developed it further, and then they eventually sold it. Uh, Rob Rayner looked at it when Castle Rock took it on and came up. It had a thriller aspect to it at some point, and that was dropped. Terrence Malick came in and came up with the ending. Willing Goldman read the script, and even though he denied, denied the persistent rumour that he actually wrote it, he just came in with some ideas for it. Uh, as anybody would do in any production, so it, it is a particularly great, great script and great film. I, I would, I would describe it as a film so perfect. Uh, there's no fat on it. Everything that happens in the film feels that it needs to happen in the film. It doesn't feel like there's anything that should have been edited out. It never feels that it slows down. It always feels snappy, punchy and keeps a momentum going. The narrative structure flows with such ease, and the characters breathe. The characters breathe real life. No matter how minor the character is, even if they're just in one scene, they feel real because the dialogue is smart, snappy, and never feels false. It's a showcase in solid filmmaking. Absolute yeah. showcase. The heartfelt moments work. You know, the character of Will, you look at the character of Will Hunting, and at the start of the film, when he's introduced, he's quite arrogant, cocky, brutish, thuggish, and could be extremely unlikable. But Damon plays him with subtle tenderness underneath that you straight away want for him to be recognised and to be better and to escape his world. And you have belief that he can change. And that's really key to it is that you have an unlikable character, but you play them in such a likable way that you start, you want to see them grow and develop. And as the revelations about his past come to light throughout the film, you start to feel more and more for him and you start to really root for him. It's such a great character study. And it's a spotlight on why Damon is such a, a great leading man. He has that charm in, in, in every role that he does. And whether the character's likable or not, he has that star quality. And it really pushed both Affleck and Damon to uh, to leading men status. And you forget that when this film came out, you know they wanted uh, they wanted Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio for the role. They didn't want these guys. And that they were attached not only as, uh, as script writers, but as a, a showcase for their own talent. And it was, you know, thanks to Kevin Smith, who, who really pushed it into, in, and, and we can talk for the, to the cows come home about what Miramax became. But at the time it was an independent studio that really brought through a lot of, uh, a, a lot of new talent. Uh, and it gave them the opportunity to make the film that they wanted to. They had great choice with going to Gus Van Sant, who they liked his previous films, the, the brilliant drugstore cowboy. Everything, as you said about it, is is everything falls into place to create a perfect film without a scene out of place the entire way through. From a script writing exercise, it's 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 a work of showing that what you need that ends up on the screen and how it's written works perfectly. And it's the small little details within the script that work. I mean, there's some great dialogue exchanges. You know, there's the bar scene with um, demonstrating intelligence, uh, which is really amusing and punchy but then you've got like some great monologues in there yes i mean robin williams uh, you forget how great a uh, straight actor robin williams could be and, and and the warmth that he brought to to almost every role that he was in it's so well written that even the small nuggets within the dialogue become important i picked up on this very first viewing the fact that robin williams's character refers to damon's like will character as sport or kid sport yeah so sport 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 but then the last two dialogue exchange scenes that they have he's now referring to him as son and that for me had so much significance that he's gone from being this distant i'm just here to coach you i'm just here to you know get you through this to he genuinely cares about him he sees he's the father figure that will never had yeah absolutely and that's the point. When he starts using the word son, that's the point at which Will completely opens up and completely breaks down for him. Yeah, it's it's got it's got wit, it's got charm, it's got pathos, uh, it's got it's got powerful performances, you know. Even if it feels implausible at times, 
you, you never want to turn away from it. You and you, it never outstays its welcome. In fact, so much so that you can watch it again uh, and and enjoy those characters, even though you know where it's going. It has a glow to it that that not many films have. It's 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 as we've used this term a lot over the last few weeks. It's one of those perfect storms of a film where everything in it works. Uh, and there's nothing about it where you go, yeah, it just didn't need that or it didn't need this. And, you know, it's smart casting, uh, some smart dialogue, uh, well-written, well-directed, uh, and such a showcase for for two talents who you forget, again, forget yeah. at that time, weren't the uh, A-stars that they are now uh, and brought them into into the spotlight and, and made their careers. Absolutely marvellous film. And I'm looking forward to sitting and re-watching this again at some point. As a kind of a follow-on from that, because you know we talked about uh, how how it created you know opportunities for both uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. The film that I want you to watch this week off your list is almost a, a kind of uh, uh, a kind of a cousin of Goodwill Hunting, again set in Boston, and that's Ben Affleck's The Town, which for me proved that that Ben Affleck is a is a great director as well as he can be a strong actor. So your mission, whether you choose to accept it, <laughs> is for this this film uh, to come back next week and tell us about The Town. Okie dokie. So as you know, from over the last couple of weeks, we've not had new films to review. Uh, there's no point explaining why, because you know you're in the middle of it. You're in the middle of this Black Mirror season six. <laughs> By the way, Andy, did you see that that thing that's running at the moment, that this is Black Mirror season six? Oh, the, the advert on the bus stop or something in, was it Spain? Yeah, Madrid, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's not official. It's not something that Netflix have put out. It was a project done by someone with an advertising company, uh, but it's a great little... Uh, it it's basically, it's basically just... If, for those who haven't seen it, it's the Black Mirror logo at the top of a giant mirror and the Netflix logo at the bottom, and just the statement, season six, happening now everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Too right. Anyway, so as we, as you know, we can't uh, talk about new films. So what we've been doing is we've been doing a deep dive. So over the last couple of weeks, last week we did Flash Gordon, we've done The Abyss. This week, we've chosen the very first, and this ages me, X film or 18 film that I ever, ever saw. <laughs> I didn't see it when it came out, but I saw it when I sneaked into it as a kid um, with a double feature with some Danish porn film. Long story, but I'm going to cut it short there. And <laughs> That's it what is. she said. <laughs> <laughs> and it is 1973's Enter the Dragon. Roper, Williams, and Lee, the deadly three, penetrate the secret chambers of an evil island empire. What do you know about Han? He lives like a king on that island, totally self-sufficient. A fortress without walls, protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons. This is Enter the Dragon, the first martial arts film produced by a major Hollywood studio. John Saxon is Roper. He was in it for the money. U.S. karate champion Jim Kelly as Williams. He was there because he had no choice. Black Belt Hall of Fame undisputed martial arts champion and international film star Bruce Lee. His job was to get them out alive. I'm hoping you'll join us, represent us in the United States. You want me to join this? Roper, Williams, and Lee. Just when they think they've broken the secret of the island, they find there is no escape from the inscrutable Han. Warner Brothers presents Enter the Dragon, where the world's greatest martial arts athletes meet the ultimate challenge with the most ancient and deadly of weapons, the human body. Enter the Dragon from Warner Brothers. Produced and starring Bruce Lee, uh, co-starred John Saxon and Jim Kelly, directed by Robert Klaus. It was Bruce Lee's final completed film appearance before his death in uh, 1973 at the age of, of 32. Uh, it was a joint American and Hong Kong production. It premiered uh, just one month after Bruce Lee's death, and it went on to gross over 90 million worldwide, uh, one of the highest rated um, 
uh, action movies and especially Chinese action movies, not only of its time, but ever. It changed the way that action movies for me uh, were made. It was incredibly influential on a lot of different filmmakers. And we talked about John Wick earlier. And Andy, this is not the first time you've seen uh, seen this film, is it? No, I. it is a couple of decades since I last watched it because I watched this way back, way back in the early 20s. Um, I was going through a huge phase of all your Hong Kong action films, etc. And so I delved back into all martial arts, history and Bruce Lee films. And because it, it's been so long, there was a lot that I've forgotten about this film. It is just a spy movie, isn't it, really? Oh, it's kind it, of a, it's a, a, a Dr. No. Of... It's, it's Dr. No meets Fu Manchu. Yeah. It, it, it's a pure Bond film with martial arts. Nothing more, nothing less. It's black exploitation meets martial arts. Uh, Lee gets recruited by British intelligence to enter a martial arts tournament to infiltrate the lair of suspected crime Lord Han, suspected of drug traffic and prostitution. And there, there's an array of combatants, including Roper, played by John Saxon, who's a gambling addict, Jim Kelly's Williams. Um, in addition, the man responsible for the death of Lee's sister, O'Hara, is in the tournament. So there's the revenge plot device into the mix as to why he takes this mission. It is a B-movie. The whole thing is something that anyone who's a fan of video games will be hugely familiar with because not only you've said that it influenced filmmakers, it's influenced the fighting video game industry phenomenally. Street Fighter, Tekken, Mortal Kombat, clearly inspired by and even directly lifted the ideas from the film in there. And even way back in the days of Double Dragon in the arcades, two of the characters in that were called Roper and Williams. You know, I never knew that. I yeah. never knew that. It's it's hugely influential. And re-watching it, it was obvious why. It's it's such a well-structured approach to making a film. You give a yeah. simple plot, take, spy, spy plot, find out if he's doing these bad things, take down the bad guy, but put an action element in there in the most forced way that you can do. Hey, it's a fighting tournament, so we're going to see a lot of fighting. Marvellous. It's it's kind of one of those films that, you know, production values are okay. They're pretty good. Then It's not a huge budget. Uh, it's It kind of works, and you think about it now, that it's got a, a white, an Asian, and a black leading man. Yep. It pretty much launched the career for um, Jim Kelly, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jim Kelly went on to do others. John Saxon was sort of an established uh, actor. He went on to do a lot of B-movies in the very first uh Nightmare on Elm Street film. Yep. He was already, uh, it was. A, I think he was a black belt in karate. Yeah, um, Shokatan Karate and Judo, he was a black belt in. And he only signed up for the film if it was confirmed that his character was to survive to the end. Because apparently on the original script, he was supposed to be the one who dies. And Williams was supposed to survive to the end. But that was swapped around just so they could get him on the board. And um, it was it was a film that's very much of its time. You know, it does look dated. However... And this is the reason you talk about Enter the Dragon, let alone before we talk about Bruce Lee, is is the the fight scenes and the action scenes are filmed are the antithesis of the way that action films, the majority of action films, are shot today, where they're shot with really really long scenes where the camera holds, and it's not about fast cuts. It's it's the antithesis of a Michael Bay film in which action is is cutting every two seconds. Uh, and you can see where films like like the John Wick movies have, have taken that inspiration from, where the scenes are held and we see the action play out on the stage as opposed from in the edit. The way that they can manage to get this is that pretty much all the cast were martial artists. They cast it with people who knew what they were doing so they could choreograph fights that look real. You know, we've already mentioned John Saxon. Jim Kelly was the karate world champion at the time. And even... And here's a little nugget of information for fans of um, Hong Kong martial arts films. Fan favourite Samo Hung and a young Jackie Chan That's both right. have brief appearances in the film. Samo Hung is at the start of the film in the fight against Lee. And Jackie Chan is one of the guards that Bruce Lee snaps the neck of. And, and that leads us nicely to talking about Bruce Lee. We mentioned the top end of this, that he died before the film was released. He was 32. He was he was an incredible star. Not only how unique it was to have an Asian actor be a, a lead actor in, in, in US filmmaking at that time. He was an international star. He he became a legend due to his unfortunate death. And But his legacy is, is that he's still a fan favorite to these days. People talk about Bruce Lee in hushed tones. Um, and she, the, the death of his son Brandon brought home, you know, the tragedy behind the the Lee family. But but yeah. what Bruce Lee did, and it's it's kind of hard to 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 even come to terms with now. 
to be a leading Asian actor, a leading star of a of a of a Western movie was was unthought of at the time. That's why he was the psychic role in the Green Hornet. That's why his version of Kung Fu ended up being made with David Carradine instead of him in the lead role. Yeah, uh, and, and but that started his film career because he went back to Hong Kong and he and he turned out a slew of Kung Fu movies, Big Boss, Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, uh, but. Enter the Dragon is the pinnacle of, of his film career. It, it showed him that he had charm and charisma by the bucket load, that he, he was a leading man in the same way that Steve McQueen was a leading man. And it was an, an, an expert athlete, an expert martial artist as well. So charismatic, just easy on the eye to look at that all movie stars are. He had a movie star quality. He wasn't just a fighter. He was a movie star at the same time. Yeah, completely agree he's he dominated the screen he took that front central lead and really deserved it yeah like you say you know at that time a lot of people of various ethnic origins were support characters but he was a full dominating leading man no ifs or buts about it and it's re-watching this and realizing that it was his last fully completed film before him passing away just really hits home what we've lost, what we, you know, imagine more films. This is basically the pinnacle of his career. And he could have continued and dominated the whole of the 70s. Which really begs the question, is is the the ultimate what if? What if he he had survived? What if he'd not passed away at such a young age? What kind of a film? I mean, if he was alive now, he'd be in his 80s. Would he become as, uh, uh, as popular as a Clint Eastwood? What kind? What other kind of films would he have made? Or would he sabotage his career in the same way that the aforementioned Jackie Chan did by basically selling out to the Hollywood circuit? Well, that was the time when the kung fu movies were grown up movies, uh, despite it being a, a you know a bit of a comic book, and I mean that in 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 the best possible sense, yeah. a comic book kind of B movie, and especially with it, its plot line and its and its characters. It was the fact that it was a grown up film. This was as as I said in this country was a. a and an 18, uh, there were scenes cut because they were considered too violent, which was the famous nunchuck sequence. Yeah. Being restored now, there is somewhat of a director's cut that we have a tendency to see now with a couple of scenes reinserted back into it. Not huge, literally minutes as opposed to, to full full scenes on it. But it, it it's a film that, that was seen by grown-ups and it was meant for grown-ups. And, and in the same way that Dirty Harry was meant for grown-ups is, is where I'm going with it. It wasn't a kid's film. It wasn't a throwaway film. It was an, an important film at its time, and and people still talk about it now, and maybe because of um, of Lee's death, but talk about it in such uh, it's having such a legacy on action films. Well, in two thousand and four, it was um, added to preservation by the National Film Registry for the reasons of being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, and you can't argue with that because it it, it is it's hugely influential of the culture and the history of the time that it was made and it still stands up so well like you say it's it looks a bit b-movie-ish because production values have changed so much over the years but it holds up it holds up perfectly because it, it does doesn't, the fight it, scenes are it doesn't need to be anything overly done and overly represented it it keeps it it looks real and that's what makes it still stand up because it doesn't look like it's been artificially created. It looks brutal. It looks thuggish. It looks real. And what elevates it into good cinema is that last sequence for me, which is the which is the lead character played, played by Bruce Lee and and Mr. Han, uh, the bad guy, and that Hall of Mirrors fight yeah. scene. Then it suddenly elevates it from just beyond a B movie, from beyond a sort of uh, 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 kung fu Bond film into into great cinema and and and. Just great choreography, fight choreography at, at its best. And I don't think we've ever seen anything as good. We've seen great stunts in Kung Fu movies and we've we've seen it. But there's a brutality to that fight sequence. Yeah, uh, The classic slashes are the... the, the that Lee's character gets from the, from the Claude Han. It's my hope that uh, when the Shang-Chi film does come out, that's the kind of kung fu movie I want it to be. I want it to have that that gritty realism, uh, even if it's fighting, you know, uh, amazing amazing foes, yeah. science fiction foes. I want to see that Shang Chi movie in my head because that was the influence on comics. It was a huge influence on on 
on mainstream media that film uh, and for comics master of kung fu the shang chai title was that and absolutely unbelievable and that's where i hope they go with it a remake of the film has been in the pipeline for over a decade now names attached over the past decade have been spike lee was attached for a couple of years yeah i, I only found out that, about that recently i think i think spike lee would have been an interest to had an interesting approach to it but then after him brett ratner so hopefully that was uh, never going to come to fruition and more recently david leach has been attached who would be perfect who would be yeah. absolutely uh, perfect to, to do that because he understands how to choreograph a great action sequence and a great fight sequence but it's it's not the fight sequences that made that film, and it's not no, the plot. No. It was Bruce Lee. It was that character, that actor. That's what that film's about. You can you you can cite moments out of it. It's it's uh, what all good films do. You can say this scene's great. This scene works as a standalone. But the the, the best sequences that you will ever talk about with Enter the Dragon are the scenes with Bruce Lee in it. No matter how good John Saxon is, no matter how good Jim Kelly was in it. Yeah, it's Bruce Lee is the heart of that film, and any other actor uh, taking that on is not just living up to to a remake of Enter the Dragon. It's it's the legacy of, of of Bruce Lee, and just how important and how fantastic and, and the term superstars banded around a lot these days. But he was a, a tour de force superstar and a great great leading man. And and that's what you could never replace, even if it was a better looking film, uh, better fight sequences, which I doubt it's it, you, the, the one element you will never replace is a Bruce Lee. And the Chinese film industry have been trying to do it for years to try to find the next Bruce Lee. Uh, and even Jackie Chan went down a completely different route. Yeah. rather than try to to emulate uh emulate the bruce lee success chan went more that like back in his hong kong action hero days he went more down the martial arts stunt work and choreography approach rather than the direct fights uh, to yeah. give dynamic entertainment you know with things like his bicycle chasing was it police story one um yeah he, he's almost but, buster keaton-esque isn't he yeah he, he went for the more more comical approach so, yeah, I mean, a, a huge, hugely influential film, one that definitely stands up today and a great revisit. If you've never revisited it in decades and you're worried that it won't stand up to the memory or you've never seen it, go and check it out. It is definitely one to track down and watch. It's available to be watched right now, I believe, on Netflix. You can see it. Yep. If you're a subscriber, go watch it. If you're an action fan and you've never seen Enter the Dragon, go watch it to see that's how you how you shoot and choreograph a film fight sequence. If you're a fan of Tekken, Mortal Kombat, you will love it. Absolutely love it. And that's about wraps us up for this week. We'll have a look at another deep dive next week. But at this stage in all our shows, we ask the question, what have you been watching? What have you been devouring? Whether it be a game, something cultural, Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing for this week is What We Do in the Shadows Season 2, which starts Ooh, I can't wait. this coming Thursday, Thursday the 11th of June on BBC. It's already up to the ninth episode in the US. I've seen some episodes of Season 2. I'm not saying how because I don't want to publicise uh, anything that... <laughs> move along, move along. <laughs> but it's... It keeps the flow, it keeps the consistency of humour, and it's growing the story and growing the world that we saw in the first season. I mean, this is a TV sitcom that shouldn't have worked. The film was so good, so perfect, that when they said that they were going to do a spin-off TV series, it was like, oh, really? Oh, what are you going to do that's the difference? And then season one came along and it was hysterical from start to finish. I've got to agree. I was really worried when they announced it because I thought it was going to be a watered down version of, of the TV series. The fact that it was going to be set in the States. I didn't realize the uh, the involvement of of the original stars in it. And, yeah. and even to the point where uh, Taiki has directed uh, my favorite episode, which is the trial episode. And it's, 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 just, a, it's just a fantastic continuation of, of the film. It's sometimes even funnier than the film, and I love, I adore the film, um, but I adore Matt the series. Berry is is the true star of the series, and he is absolutely hilarious. And through season two, he again continues being hilarious. But even characters such as Guillermo, he's growing as a character, and he's becoming something a lot more important than what we saw in the first season. 
I'm, I'm completely in love with this show. Season two could have just like repeated all the things that were done in season one and just tread water. But no, it's delivering every episode and they've already announced season three is going to happen. But fans in the UK, this Thursday, 11th of June, BBC Two, season two starts. Get that in your planner. I'll be there. I'll be there with bells on it. Uh, mine, mine was going to be something else this week. I found a link, and well, I had a link for a comic book that explained uh, why Black Lives Matter in in a in a, in a in a comic sense. And I, for the life of me, have not been able to find the link. So I've scrambled around at the last minute to to bring you something else. So if anybody knows where that link is, drop us a line on Twitter at Filmfile UK. So I had to scramble around for something, something else, and I just didn't want to compromise uh, and and just do something that was that was uh, uh, political for the sake of it, because I think it's it's important. I just didn't want to come back with something sort of half-assed. But the other thing I've been listening to all last week and has really got under my skin uh, has been uh, the anthology album of John Carpenter. John Carpenter, the film director, who made Escape uh, Escape from New York, uh, Dark Star. Uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Again, an influential film director. One of my, one of the people I would go to see based on his name rather than what the project is. I will always go and see a John a John Carpenter film. Love him, but the element that always works for a John Carpenter movie is that he scores his own movies. It's uh, available to buy. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon if you are a subscriber to uh, to a music site. I'm a subscriber to Apple then just download the John Carpenter anthology. It contains all the all the soundtrack and main themes from some of his films, uh, from most of his films, in fact. And the thing about, about the John Carpenter themes are they are a character within the movie. They are as identifiable as his filming style, even to the extent The Thing, which ended up being scored by Ennio Morricone, Still feels like a John Carpenter, uh, a John Carpenter score. They are such an important part of his filmmaking style, and it's unusual for a director to score his own films. But themes like Assault on Precinct Thirteen and uh, the Halloween theme and Escape from New York are just absolutely sublime and become another dimension to, to his films and help create the identity that, that is John Carpenter, the filmmaker. So that's my recommendation for the week. It's the John Carpenter anthology, his movie movie themes from 1974 through to uh, 1998. And they're a terrific listen for anybody who's a fan of not only his work, but of soundtracks in particular. I completely agree with you on um, that choice. Uh, I used it when I do me Sunday Twitter chats. We did a week when we were talking about John Carpenter films. So I actually had that playing behind me while oh, really? I was um, answering one and a half hours worth of questions on John Carpenter. And it's a great soundtrack album. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, I mean, completely it's... agree with you. It's a, it's a great thing to listen to. Like you say, every one of the tracks has a character, a personality to it. And just listening to them again, you can instantly put yourself back within the film. And that's it for this week. As ever, thank you for spending your afternoon with us. We hope we've kept you enlightened. If you're a fan of the pod, please feel the need to subscribe. Uh, we always uh, look forward to any of your comments. Um, and that's it, Andy. Anything got planned for the week, or you're just going to retire to the the uh, thousands of films that you're trying to catch up on? Yeah, just got to continue plowing through films. That's pretty much my life at this point in time. We'll see you next week. And remember, do not concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all of the heavenly glory. At that point, I'm going to smack Andy around the head. <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> we'll be again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Jaws now not working. <laughs>